Well, good morning, everybody. God bless you. It just started to rain, I was told. So, uh, and it's supposed to rain all day. So get comfortable. Uh, yeah, I don't want you to get. You know, I'd rather have you be bored than get wet. So we'll just elongate the class. Wonderful to see Fredo. Good to see you, baby. Welcome home. Good to see you. You look good. There's Rachel. Good to see you. Rach, are you glad to have him back? Tell the truth. Okay, good. I just want to know. Great to see everyone. Hey, a few weeks ago, a wonderful lady came, Maria, and gave us the opportunity to take these baby bottles and fill it with coins or paper money. She's coming back to collect them August 20th, so two weeks from today. However, some people have already brought theirs in, no problem. Um, if you can uh, trust me, and that's a bit of a stretch, give it to me, um, because they go to a specific crisis pregnancy center. It's the one on Beamer and Scarsdale, right around the corner from us. Maria volunteers there. Our ch church has a lot of involvement there as well as others. But this particular offering is for that crisis pregnancy center. So if you're collecting the baby bottles, you have time to fill it up as the Lord leads, and it will really, really meet a vital need at the crisis pregnancy center. So I'll, uh, if, if uh, I remember, I'll remind you next week again that on the 20th, if you picked up one of these and would like to bring it back, that would be great. We'll give it to Maria. She'll take it to the crisis pregnancy center, and that'll be quite a blessing. So there you have it. Yes, ma'am. Yes, you can write a check to the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Yes, and, um, and, and Rita, if you need, oh, it doesn't say on here. In the bottle, she had a card, but if you don't have a bottle, um, I don't know the address. It's, but, but anyway, yeah, you can give checks. Yes, sir. No, isn't this a good problem? However, we will do this again, but be, uh, your, this class and the prior two took all the bottles she had. In fact, her husband, Guillermo, went out quickly to buy additional ones, and we gave those all out as well. Um, along with uh, what Becky said, uh, uh, thank you for doing this. It's a great uh, group of people, Becky. I agree with you. Once a need is thrown out there, people really rally, uh, whether it's Open Door Mission or Crisis Pregnancy Center. Really, really great uh, causes. So thank you for your involvement. Okay, we're doing good here. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 3 today. 1 Samuel chapter 3. I'll give you a chance to go there. And ladies, there, uh, there are seats here. Oh, never mind. They don't want to sit in the front. I don't blame them. <clears throat> I wouldn't sit in the front. Are you kidding? It's like the death seat, the danger area. You never know what's going to happen. First Samuel 3, the setting remains Shiloh, Shiloh. It's in what today we would call the West Bank. It's ancient Samaria. Shiloh was a key religious center in ancient Israel. The tabernacle which housed the Ark of the Covenant carried by Israel through 40 years of wilderness wandering, was established at this place. It was a place of worship prior to the construction of the permanent temple in Jerusalem. So this is an important place. And uh, it remains the scene of the chapter before us. So now that you're there, look at verse 1. Now the boy Samuel. Does your translation say boy why does it say boy or child? Why does it say boy or child? Any idea? Yes, because he was a boy or child. <laughs> yeah. How old was he? We don't know. We know when he was approximately three, when he was weaned, he was brought to this place to serve the Lord. Who brought him there? What's her name? Yeah, she did. She fulfilled her vow. He went there to serve the Lord under the auspices of a priest. What's his name? Yeah, so because this is South Texas, we will accept Eli as the answer. 
but I'll only tell you once in the interest of biblical accuracy that his name is Ellie, Ellie, okay, Ellie, but my fellow Texans will go for Eli. So there he was to serve under Eli at this place, Shiloh. Now, though we don't know exactly how old he was, Josephus, have you heard of him? Historian, Jewish historian, records that Samuel was 12 at the time. I don't know if that's the case, but I think it's a ballpark figure. He's a young boy, and it says he was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. When God communicated, he often did so then in visions I did not say he cannot do that today, but I will say if he does that, he does so with much less frequency than in that day. If what I just said is true, why? Why did he communicate more frequently in visions then than now? Any idea? Who said that? Absolutely correct answer. Thank you, brother. Things are different. We have the Bible. 66 books. Now people say, Stuart, you're missing it. Because the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Yeah, but that doesn't mean he does the same things in every era. Uh, You know, as the Bible unfolds, we are progressing forward. I can prove to you God doesn't do the same things in every era. Uh, For instance, as I look around the room, I I see only one lady... Wonderful, beautiful Johnny, who's wearing, whose head is covered. The rest of you ladies, according to the New Testament text, are outside the will of God, right? <laughs> Listen, it gets worse. I notice some ladies with short hair. Oh, this is like a no-no. This is an absolute no-no. So look, that's in the Bible. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. There's a difference between a biblical practice, and a biblical principle. Not all biblical practices are to be practiced in every day, but all biblical principles are. So, for instance, um, when was the last time you stoned anyone? Did you participate? I didn't say get stoned. That's a different. (laughs) When was the last time you pick up? I mean, that was like an Old Testament capital punishment thing. So I can throw this argument, but if God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, aren't we in violation of Scripture uh, not doing that? No, you would say, no. Every biblical practice um, reveals a biblical principle. The principle remains, but not necessarily the practice. And so here we're seeing, you'll see in one chapter, how God's means of primary communication change. The principle of him communicating doesn't change. The principle of us needing to hear from him doesn't change, but the practice by which it happens does. In this day, uh, a word from the Lord was rare, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Because God doesn't force feed people. If people have no appetite for what he has to say, he doesn't say it. My people, ancient Israel, had no appetite for what he had to say. Therefore, he doesn't. It's a bad thing, a serious thing, when the creature is cut off from communication with the creator. That's what happened. The word from the Lord was rare in those days. Now, I want to share with you a a verse that you're familiar with. It's Proverbs 28 verse, uh, excuse me, 29 verse 18, where there is no vision. See, the verse we read said visions were infrequent. Where there is no vision, would you complete it? The people perish. That is one of the most oft misinterpreted verses in all the Bible. And uh, we shouldn't mishandle scripture. People who know better mishandle that one. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Here's how it's used. Where a church has no strategy for its future. 
where the leaders of an organization are not setting goals for the organization, uh, where there is no vision in that sense for the church, for the organization, it will perish. Now, though it's true that planning for the future is an important thing, that's not what that verse is saying at all. It is saying, when it says where there's no vision, the people perish, it is saying when people don't have the word of God, they are in trouble. Now, how do I know this? Look at part B of that verse. It says, happy is, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Part B doesn't make any sense unless part A is given the right interpretation. Here's part A. Where people don't have the word of God, a vision from God, they perish. What's really good is to have the law of God and obey it. That makes you happy. See how it fits? So why do I bring this up? Because we have a way, preachers and teachers in particular, of wanting to make a point by using the scripture to do it. So we'll rest a verse of scripture from its context and lay it out on listeners when in fact it's not saying that at all. One day I'm going to write a book. I'm not going to because there's enough books. But, uh, but if I was, I'd write a book on verses like this, which are absolutely misused passages of Scripture. doesn't mean what a preacher is saying is untrue, but I hate it when it is uh, connected to a text that isn't saying that at all. This verse that I just read to you, verse uh, Proverbs 29, 18, is an illustration of what's happening in Israel. Without a vision, a communique from God, the people, ancient Israel, are on the verge of perishing, but they brought it upon themselves. But things are going to change now because in this particular chapter, God is going to break the silence. And he's going to do it through a child named Samuel. Up until this point, God's primary means of communication has been through judges and priests, of which Eli was one. Because of trouble, big trouble, unchecked evil in Eli's family, God is switching gears. Sin doesn't keep God's plan from being um, put to work. But the vehicle by which God uh, gets the job done changes. So it's not going to be Eli. You'll see it's going to be Samuel. So here we have verse 2. It happened at that time as Eli was lying down, sleeping in his place, in his place in Shiloh, in the precincts of the tabernacle somewhere. It says, now his eyesight had begun to grow dim. Why? Because he's getting old, and his vision is now becoming impaired. He couldn't see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. It was probably a seven-branched candelabra in which uh, th there was placed oil with a wick, oil lamps. We call it a menorah. It's an ancient and even contemporary symbol in Judaism, a seven-branched candelabra. It was uh, lit at uh, twilight. It was supposed to burn all through the night. However, and so it says the lamp had not yet gone out, which tells us what we're reading about took place at night. It's in the evening. And Samuel was also lying down. In his case, was in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. The ark was Israel's holiest piece of furniture. In it were the Ten Commandments. This is very important. Now, Samuel was not a priest of Israel, nor could he ever be. Why? Anyone have an idea why? Correct. He, he was not a, from the tribe of Levi at all. He was from Ephraim. And so he couldn't be, he was serving there uh, at the, where the ark was and so on, but he can never be a priest. He's going to be somebody other than a priest. Well, all this is going on, we read, verse 4, that the Lord called Samuel and he said, Hineni. In English, here I am. So we take the three words in English, here I am, underlying it is one word in Hebrew, Hineni. 
It's a very important word. In the Old Testament, or what we call the Hebrew Scriptures, you see Hineni uttered on many occasions when people are in close enough proximity of, uh, to God to hear his call. Then they quickly say, Hineni, here I am. Folks, this is what we ought to aspire to be. People so close to God that when he beckons to us, um, leads us, guides us, wants us to change direction, speaks to us, we could immediately say Hineni. We don't want to be drifting, distracted, or distanced from God, lest when he calls, we don't hear. Samuel's just a young boy. He hears a voice. It's the voice of God. But as you'll see, he sort of misses the point. And so in verse 5, it says, Then he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. So uh, Samuel was confused. He, he missed the voice of God, thinking what he heard was the voice of man. Today, we're more prone to do the opposite. We hear the voice of man, thinking mistakenly it's the voice of God. Be careful, folks, when you're listening to preachers and teachers, even in this fine church. Do not put your discernment in neutral. Listen with both ears to see whether what you're hearing squares with what God is saying. It is true that God authorizes people to preach and teach, but those people never become God. Their voice is not equivalent to the voice of God. Be careful. If you're in a place like that, that is called a cult. That's when the cult leader uh, assumes a position of such magnitude and authority, what he has to say or she is indistinguishable from what God has to say. That's a dangerous environment in which to be. You cannot disagree with folks like that. You do not want to be in a church where you cannot disagree with the pastor in a respectful manner. If you're in that place, you're in a dangerous place. You want to be in a place where though you're listening respectfully to what your pastors, teachers have to say, you're sifting it through the biblical grid yourself to see whether or not what they're saying squares with Scripture. So today the problem is sometimes equating or uh, misconstruing the voice of man to be the voice of God. Uh, Samuel did the opposite. He hears a voice. He's a young kid. He doesn't know anything. He hadn't had this experience of hearing directly from God. So he gets up and he runs to Eli. And Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and laid down. Now, verse 6, it gets to be a little comical. The Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, this is the second time, here I am for you called me. But he answered, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now, neither the older man nor the young boy are getting a good sleep. I mean, Eli, is, uh, Samuel is popping up like crazy. He's disturbing. You know, he's probably lying down in close proximity to Eli, specifically because he's there to serve. Eli is now advanced in years. He doesn't see well. And uh, maybe he calls at night because he's thirsty, but it's dim. Uh, and he can't get himself out of bed to get some water. So he, he may call Samuel, and Samuel would come and get him some water to satisfy his thirst. So this is, Samuel is geared up to do this. Now, verse 7, Samuel, it says, did not yet know the Lord. Now, what does that mean? This kid had no knowledge of God? I mean, he is serving at the religious center. People come from all over on specific occasions to offer sacrifices and worship God there. What do you mean doesn't know God? Folks, there are, um, there are um, phases of the knowledge of God. Don't you agree? Um, he did know God, but what he didn't know is that you could hear directly from God. Hence the next phrase in verse 7. Nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. 
He did not have yet a direct encounter with God where God is specifically speaking to him in a dream or in a vision. He's a young kid, maybe 12 years old. He had a God consciousness, but he never had this personal encounter where God speaks to him directly. That's kind of what's going on. As a result, he's not discerning the voice of God now. He had no experience in doing so. So verse 8, the Lord called Samuel again, And in case you lost count, the text tells us it's now for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. Ah, how was he able to discern the Lord's call, but Samuel wasn't? Experience. Eli was more experienced in hearing from God. Samuel was a neophyte. Every Samuel needs an Eli to say, listen up, Samuel. The next time he calls, respond. Now, Eli is a good guy. Eli is not an evil man. But Eli is a passive father who allowed his kids to commit atrocious sin in their function as Levitical priests. Women would come to make offerings to God. Eli's sons would take undue advantage of them and have sex with them. This is not good. Eli did not participate, but Eli looked the other way. He didn't participate in the evil But he didn't restrain it either. Not good. More to be said about that. But though he was a flawed human being, he was not rebellious and hard-hearted as were his sons. Therefore, he was able to direct Samuel. Now, to Eli's credit, Eli is picking up on something. He knows the mantle is going to be passed. He knows the time of him being the primary spokesman in Israel as priest and that of his sons is coming to an end. He knows this because God revealed that to him in the prior chapter, in chapter 2. He could resent the fact that God now is calling not to him but to a young kid. He could resent it, but he doesn't. In fact, he directs the young boy, Samuel, in this fashion. Verse 9, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and it shall be if he, God, calls you, that you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Good counsel. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Being willing to listen begets communication from God. Remember, God doesn't waste his words. Why would he waste it on someone who's not ready to listen? Eli gives good guidance. Go back, he says to Samuel. If he calls again, simply say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. As a bit of a side point, let me mention this. When I first read this chapter about 40 years ago, that's the first time I was a relatively new believer. I came up with something I called the sandwich principle. I was in the military at the time. <clears throat> and uh, I determined then that I was going to ask God to sandwich me in between two kinds of people. An Eli above and uh, a, a Samuel below. I asked God to put me between an Eli type who could help me discern his call, who could say, Stuart, this is what God says. Listen to him, a mentor, if you will. But I also wanted a Samuel with whom I could provide the same service. If all you're doing is getting information from an Eli type, but not passing it on, you will stagnate, just like the Dead Sea. There's no input in outflow. You're just a dead sea spiritually. So I asked God to sandwich me in between an Eli 
who walked with him longer than I, who could discern God's call and truth and guide me in it. And then I asked God to give me a Samuel with whom I could do the same. And my first Eli was the guy who led me to the Lord. He was a guy in the military. Uh, uh, his name was Mark. Mark Santo Stefano, an Italian guy. Yeah, where's Vic and Mike? Oh, here's my Italian friend. Why are all the Italians seated in the same row? What's the deal? Look how they stick together. Oh, we've got two Italians here, and they're sitting in this. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so my friend, I, I ended up calling him Guido, which, which means the guy, because he, he guided me into relationship with Christ. But he didn't just lead me to the Lord. He mentored and became an Eli. He helped me. And then my uh, second Eli was a group of women. Yeah, kind of strange, huh? But I, I met them somehow uh, where I was stationed. They invited me to their home, not just me, others uh, who were uh, young guys stationed there in the military come to their home for refreshments and Bible study. And one of the ladies... Her name was Mrs. Lucille Manzingo. She was a widow when I met her, and she, her husband had died many years before I met her. She gave me my first concordance. Those were before all these electronic days. There was something called a Strong's Concordance. It was a big honking thing. You older people, if you're nodding your head, you're old, you're old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and don't, don't keep nodding. You'll get a crick here. And you, but anyway, she gave me a strong concordance. And uh, one time I asked a question in the Bible said about prayer. And Mrs. Monzingo came to me and she said, Stuart, let me show you how to use this concordance. Open it up. Look up the word prayer, which I did. She said, look at here. This gives all the places in the Bible where that word appears. Go home and look them up and see if you can't find an answer to your own question. That's what she did. And then there was another lady in the group, Mrs. Masara, her name uh, was, and she taught me how to memorize scripture. She was going blind, and she said, Stuart, I'm not really nervous about it because I have, uh, from an early age, hidden God's word in my heart. That's how she put it. And she taught me how to memorize scripture. So those were Eli's in my life. And then I've had Samuels over the years who I have taught how to use a concordance and how to memorize scripture. I, I challenge you. Ask a God, based on the sandwich principle, to bless you by sandwich, sandwiching you in between an Eli or Eli's and some Samuel. So you can receive, and then you could also pass on. That's the goal. So uh, Samuel receives discernment and a good a bit of counsel from Eli. If he calls again, get up and say, speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening. So verse 10 then the Lord came and, does your Bible say, and stood? Well, now, wait just a second. God standing? Hmm. I thought God was invisible, unseen, transcendent, out of this world. For him to stand presumes he, uh, he got physical and appeared. Am I reading this right? You think that could happen? It did happen. Now, I'll tell, I'll tell you this. You don't have to buy this. I'm just guessing. This appearance of God, I think, could be the Lord. And why do I say that? Some people will say, and this is a little odd. Well, you mean the Lord like Jesus? But he did, didn't he like come into existence in the New Testament? Isn't that, you know, like Christmas? I, I used to actually think this. You know, that's when this Jesus had his beginning. But then it occurred to me, wait a second. Jesus is God. Do you believe that? Yeah, Jesus is God. So does God have a beginning? He is self-generated. He's not... Theologians call God a necessary being, not a contingent being. Everyone here is, your existence is contingent on God. But God is a necessary. He has, by definition, God has to, necessarily has to exist. His being is not contingent. So anyway, Jesus is God. That means he was pre-existent. So long before what happened in Bethlehem, Jesus was. What did he do? 
Did he just play the harp all the time? No. There are many uh, um, incidents in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures of what we call the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord. Before he became enfleshed, he appeared in other forms. I think this may be one. I don't want to be dogmatic, but it could very well be one. This is a physical appearance of God. He's standing and he's calling and he's saying, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel learned his lesson well. He said, speak, for thy servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which... How many ears does your Bible say? Both. So that's like two, right? Yeah. At which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. When you read about the tingling of the ears, especially both ears in the Old Testament, it means an impending, serious, divine judgment. That's what's happening. And God gets specific here, verse 12. In that day... I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, which implies no surprise to Eli what God's about to do because God already told him, and he did in the prior chapter. In fact, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 27, we read, Then a man of God came to Eli. Interestingly, in chapter 2, verse 27, this man of God is not named We know nothing more of him. I say once again, I think that too could be a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. This mysterious man of God comes to Eli. And if you read the rest of chapter 2, you will find out that God told him there he's going to judge the priestly line of Eli, specifically his two sons, because his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in Hebrew we say Pinchas, committed terrible sin. And why is Eli also being consequenced? Not because he participated in the evil, but because he looked the other way. Now you say, wait just a second. A parent is not in control of the decisions his or her adult children make. You are correct. We birth our kids. We do the best we can. I hope we raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if we've been Christians. Later they grow up. They have free will. They make choices. Some of them are bad, really sinful. Is the parent to blame? No, I don't think so. So why is God holding Eli responsible? It's not that Eli participated in the evil. It's that Eli did nothing about it. He could not keep his sons from committing immorality but he could keep them from doing so in the office of priest. (sighs) You can't do that. You can't sin against God, in this case sexually and also financially, they embezzled funds, (laughs) and think you can carry on your ministry and God's going to tolerate it. Why did Eli look the other way? Why? Because he didn't want to make waves. He's a good guy. He doesn't want to stir things up. That's why sometimes even in churches, when a minister is engaged in unrepented of sin, sometimes people look the other way. Because to confront it means you will really stir things up. To which I say, too bad. I don't want to be judged like Eli. If a minister in our church is found to be involved in sin and he is not confessing it nor repenting of it, the church has to lovingly but firmly confront that minister lest we be complicit. Yeah, but what about grace and love and all those concepts which are so important to us. What about restoration? Yeah, but restoration doesn't necessarily mean to the ministry again as if nothing ever happened. 
restoration means we want to help that person to recognize what led to the sin area. Why are some pastors more prone to sexual immorality than others or pornography or things like that? Well, I know the bottom line is because we're sinners. I got that. But why is that area of sin so tempting for some, not as much for others? So we want to help that person see the precursors of it. So we want to take time in restoring that person to a place of health and wellness and insight he otherwise would not have. We pastors learn Greek and Hebrew, but we know little about ourselves. We think that's unspiritual. So sometimes we don't see how our unmet emotional needs are going to lead us to meeting those needs, sometimes outside the will of God. So that's part of the restoration. Also, that sinning minister's family needs some help, all the rest. Does that mean a minister who's committed an act or acts of sexual immorality is forever uh, to be denied uh, uh, the ministry? No. No. Yeah, but how long should that person be out of full-time ministry before he resumes his tasks? Ah, so that how long question. I have counseled with ministers in this situation, and if one asks that, how long, I say the fact that you're asking the question tells me you're not even close to being ready. You never want to ask how long as if once I jump through your hoops, get counseling and do all this stuff, I can just resume business as usual. No. You want to say that ought not be your interest. Your interest ought to be get well, get healthy, get right with God again. We'll see. The minister who's committed an act of sexual immorality has had to become proficient in deception because he's conducting himself in the ministry, yet on the side he's got this woman or women. So he's gotten pretty good at being deceptive. Therefore, you've got to keep that guy lovingly on the ropes, which means you don't explain to him the rules of the game. You never say, hey, go for counseling for three months, and then we'll talk. No, no, no. You don't want to, pardon the expression, play your hand, because it's an act of love. You want to keep him... Um, on edge, sufficiently uncomfortable so that he realized there may not be the resumption of normalcy. But what about restoration? Again, restoration to fellowship with God is a whole lot different than restoration to ministry you had before the commission of sin, particularly sexual sin. So, but that's tough stuff. You know why? If church leadership takes a stand with reference to one of its ministers but protects that one's reputation, then the rest of you folks think the church leadership is hard-hearted and heavy-handed because we may choose not to reveal all things to you and you're wondering why did you take this action with reference to this good guy. Now, if you're in a church like that and you don't trust the leadership, you need to find another church. That's all I can say. If you don't trust the leadership, to do the right thing in situations like this without telling everyone all of the gory details, you probably should find another church, it seems to me. I would. If I couldn't trust the leadership in this church, I, I mean, doesn't, I'd find another place. So anyway, Eli doesn't want to upset the apple cart. So you know who he is? He's a dad who's passive. Men, we're supposed to be the spiritual leaders. That doesn't mean autocrats and dictators. That's a misuse of spiritual leadership. We're supposed to take the lead in loving our family members. And one of the ways to love them is to try to put a check on unbridled patterns of sin. And if we abrogate that responsibility, God holds us responsible. So that's what happened with Eli. So God announced the judgment in the prior chapter. He reiterates it here in chapter... um, Three and, and says in verse 13, for I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity, look, which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. See? 
And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Does this mean they are beyond forgiveness? Uh, uh, the answer is yes. What? <laughs> Folks, if a person refuses the forgiveness of God, they have put themselves beyond the possibility of forgiveness. God in his wisdom and insight knows Eli's sons are not going to confess their sin and repent. They have denied themselves, therefore, uh, the forgiveness of God. They have excluded themselves from the forgiveness of God. Folks, God doesn't forgive people who do not wish to be forgiven. Did you know that? He doesn't push himself upon us. So in this sense, yeah, they are out of the reach of forgiveness by their own hard-heartedness. In verse 15, so Samuel laid down until morning. Can you imagine this? You're a kid. This is the first thing you hear from God. You just got a message about the guy who was your spiritual mentor. Your parents know this priest. That priest blessed your parents. He has raised you all these years. And now God told you about judgment to befall that priest and his whole household. And you know about this. And now you have to go back to sleep until the sun rises. There's no way he's sleeping. Are you kidding me? So what happens is then in the morning, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, which gives us some insight into the task Samuel was performing there. He opened the doors of the place so that worshipers could come. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Can you imagine? Teenage kid entrusted with this. He's afraid. What he heard from God was a burden. Do you know that's the very word used with reference to the revealed word of God sometimes in the Bible? I was reading, I think, the other day in Habakkuk, and it says the oracle of God, or it could be translated the burden of God. Burden. You say, wait a second, I thought the word of God was like a joy, really cool thing. Remember, not necessarily. It's quite burdensome to tell the whole truth of the word of God. I, I tell you what I mean. I have a niece who came to know the Lord, an adult niece. She's growing. She said to me one time, Uncle Stuart, that's what she calls me, Uncle Stuart, what about dad, her dad? He's deceased. She said, where is he now? Will I ever see him again? Now I'm left with the responsibility of communicating the burden of the word of God. It's no burden if I distort it and say, he was a good man, all good people. Oh, he's in heaven. There's no burden. But if you're sharing truth, it's burdensome. I told her, uh, her name is uh, Marsha. I told her, uh, Marsha, here's what the Bible says. He who has the son I told her, you know, you know, that's Jesus has the life, but he who does not have the son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I said, Marcia, those are the only options. She started to cry. I said, but wait, nobody is more concerned about your dad's eternity than almighty God who provided a way by which his eternity could be secured. And I said, Marcia, I don't know what business he transacted with the Lord before he passed away. The good news is he heard the good news. And so I told her, Marsha, can you see how important it is to make sure everybody hears the good news? At least we have the assurance that your dad heard. How he responded, I don't know that. We just have to wait and see. She went away kind of, you know, she went away burdened by all this. I could have cleaned the hole up by preaching what's called universal salvation. Everybody goes to heaven. But if you want to tell the truth, oh, my goodness, it could be burdensome. Now, we have a large church. I think it's the largest now in the country here in good old Houston, where I doubt the preacher has ever used the dirty three-letter word sin in his whole career in his preaching or the horrible four-letter word hell. Instead, he preaches about how it's your right to be healthy and wealthy. I love that stuff. That's all the cool passages of Scripture. Talk about promises, talk about blessings, even if they are wrenched out of con uh, context. 
Talk about being happy in Jesus. That's cool. But don't ever talk about being holy in Jesus. You know, if you talk about being holy in Jesus, you get certain things. I have people on a list, an email list. Some I've gone to Israel with. Others are interested in things from Israel. And they're on an email list. And when I find articles of interest, I send it to them. I sent one a month or so ago. It was about a gay pride parade in Tel Aviv, the largest almost in the world. Uh, Tel Aviv, Israel, has been voted the most gay-friendly city in the uh, world. And my point was not to parade gay people or anything like that. My point was simply to say my people are surrounded by enemies on all sides, but the real problem is the enemy within. It's our own sin. This is contrary to the will of God. In the Holy Land, unholy behavior. One of the persons on my email list is a, is a, uh, is, is a gay man, and he... Uh, uh, emailed me and said, Stuart, please remove my name from your list. I no no longer wish to hear things like this. That kind of hurt me because I really like him, and I count him a friend. We went to Israel together, and I thought, I'm really tempted to find a way to soften this. You know, maybe I can say, well, if it's two adults who love each other, it doesn't matter if they're the same gender. I really like that. I would have him as a friend, but that's not what the Bible says. And we have to communicate the full counsel of God, don't we? So I lost a friend. It's a burden to share the full counsel of God. And as a result, in a lot of church, churches, they don't. I sat with a couple recently. They asked me if I would marry them. I sat right here in the lobby. Young girl and her beau. She uh, indicated she knew the Lord, but he did not. As gently and lovingly as I could, I told them I couldn't officiate because God uh, would not have this. The scriptures say this is what's called an unequal, out-of-balance partnership, I explained to them. Your value systems will collide. God loves you and wants you to save you from this. And I looked to him and spoke to him about God's interest in being wedded to him. Would he be interested in knowing more about that? Well, the girl cried, and they left, and then I got a call later from the girl's father, who's a member of this church, and he berated me for making his little girl cry. And I berated him for not telling her the truth. I said, I wonder how much of your life have you spent trying to make your little girl happy instead of holy, and now she's attracted to an unsaved guy. I'm not going to marry them, and you better stand in the way of it as well. Well, not only did he not stand in the way of it, he goes to see the pastor, he reports me, he does all this other kind of stuff. But I've got to tell you something, folks. <laughs> folks, if you share the truth of the Bible, it's a burden. Where do we get off thinking? It's like easy stuff. It's just so enjoyable to tell people about all this. I had someone tell me, do you mean to tell me if... Uh, How about this question? Do you mean to tell me our people, this was an unsaved Jewish guy who died in the Holocaust, six million of them who died in Nazi Germany, do you mean to tell me those who didn't accept your Jesus will be eternally separated from God? What's the answer? Yes. That's the hardest yes to verbalize you can imagine. But that's the truth of the word of God. You want to hear something else? I found out that about 50% of the members of this church never give a penny to support it. 50%. So somehow I guess they think magically these lights get paid for, these chairs get purchased, you know, and all the rest takes place without supporting the church to which you belong. 50%. When we share about the responsibility and privilege of giving, that's a burden. For folks who think that's meddling and stepping on toes. But that's part of the full counsel of God. So I sympathize with young Samuel who feared sharing God's word with his mentor. Because he didn't know how his mentor would respond. But too bad. If we say the Bible is the word of God, then every bit of it has to be preached. I remember when Paul said this in 
Acts chapter 20. Therefore, he said, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. All of it, not just the easy passages. So here's what happens. Verse 16, Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. You know what's interesting? Eli is doing a great job with someone else's son, but he did a miserable job with his own. He counsels this somebody else's son. Next time you hear the voice, say, oh, God, here I am, your servants. Why didn't you tell that to your own sons? It's very interesting. This is a malady a lot of my ministerial colleagues suffer from and and we're all tempted to and that is to be giving care to someone else's family while neglecting your own why because we in the minister get great satisfaction from ministering to others Uh, we get liked we get favor we get pats on the back So we're more prone to invest ourselves in ministering to other family members than our own. And so there are many, many kids, preachers' kids, who are embittered, not only towards their dad, the ministry, but also to the Lord. I pastored a church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I had a staff. I told them, if you ever miss a child's baseball game or miss going to the doctor with your wife, I will fire you. That is your ministry. This church can do fine without you. But your wife has one husband and your kids have one dad. We don't have a ministry if things on the home front fall apart. So it's interesting. Eli the priest did well with someone else's son, but he was a dismal failure with his own. That's not a good thing. Anyway, he tells him, um, asks him, what did God Say, verse 17, he says, what, what is the word that he, God, spoke to you? Please don't hide it from me, Eli says. May God do to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. He kind of puts a curse on this young boy to spit it out. Well, now Sam, uh, Samuel has no choice. And so verse 18, Samuel told him everything, hid nothing from him. And here's how Eli responded. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Eli is not an evil man. He's a flawed human being. But he said, I'm open to what God has to say. I will receive what God has to say. So thus Samuel, verse 19, grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, northernmost, southernmost extent of the land, Dan to Beersheba, knew that uh, Samuel, by the way, Daniel, Lord willing, we're going to Israel in uh, whenever, a few, few weeks. We go to this place, Shiloh. Yeah. It's, having read it, it'll be really, really cool. By then, maybe some of your hair will grow back. Yeah, I'm just saying. Because you look like an escaped convict. You know. I'm just, I'm just saying. So anyway... So all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew Samuel was confirmed, look at as a prophet. So look, don't tell me uh, God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and therefore whatever happened at any place in the Bible takes place at every place. That's not true. Look at the transition. Uh, f- uh, God uh, first had judges over Israel. Now the time of the judges is passing, and... Uh, the priesthood of Eli and his sons is passing. And what, what is God doing? He's raising up a prophet. The time of the prophets. Samuel is one of the first prophets. God's going to speak through prophets. But does God always speak through prophets? Some would say, yes, I'm a prophet of God. Those people don't know what they're talking about. Look at here. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God... After, after, that's a time indicator, after he spoke long ago, that's in the past. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, who were they? The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Gesundheit. That was the cutest sneeze. Did you hear that? You need to do, do that again. 
Can you do that? Oh, that's like a good one. A good one. I, I have like, a, what, like one of these sneezes from the throat. <laughs> it's really, people run for cover. Your sneeze is wonderful. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, look, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, do you know we're living in the last days? Ever since Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, coming of the Holy Spirit, formation of the church, those are technically the last days. In these, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Don't tell me, since God is unchangeable, the means by which he communicates is unchangeable. No. The primary means of communication now is through Jesus the Son. I'm not going to apostle so-and-so. I'm not going to self-proclaim prophet whatever. I'm not reading, uh, going to the palm reader. I'm not having someone whisper into my ears secret messages from God that God revealed to them about me. I'm running to the word of God through which the enfleshed word of God communicates. In this day, I didn't say God can't give dreams and visions. I'm just saying if that's the primary means by which you're hearing from God, the burden of proof is on you. I don't have to disprove it. You have to prove it to be authentic. Why would God use that as a primary means of communication now that in the last days... He's chosen to communicate himself through Jesus, his son. And every characteristic of Jesus is an exact parallel to every characteristic of the Bible. He is without sin. It is without error. It's an exact parallel. Why? If you want to hear from Jesus, you go to the word of God. You do the hard work of getting your head and your heart in Scripture. You don't look for quick fixes and mystical, magical things by these uh, sorcerers claiming to be prophets and apostles today. When I just read you uh, two verses of Scripture in Hebrews 1 that, where it says, though God is the same, the means by which he is communicating with us has changed from Old Testament days to our present day. Why? Because now we have 66 books of complete revelation. It began in the beginning. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It ends in revelation, which brings us into eternity, future. And it says, don't dare subtract from it nor add to it. It's a complete revelation of God. So uh, we're seeing here from judges to priests to prophets, Samuel being one, and ultimately, to King Jesus. When you find King Jesus, you have found the source of information about the otherwise unseen God. He said, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's why don't be running to these... Uh, Conferences, bookstores, crazy meetings where these guys claim to have special revelation from God as if they're speaking from God. You're confusing. Uh, you're equating the voice of man with the voice of God. Now, why do I need any of that? Now, you're entitled to your dreams and visions. You can share them with me if you want to, but I don't get excited about it because it just as easily could have come from Satan. I don't know who it came from and neither do you. What I get excited about is when someone teaches me the Bible because that's objective ground right there. We both can look at Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. It's not a matter of opinion. We look at words. God conformed truth to words. We run to words. We examine it in context. We look at word meanings. We see what it has to say. It's not your opinion versus my opinion. It's what does the text say? That's a whole lot better than I had a dream last night where God told me to move to Zanzibar and take you with me or whatever the deal is. I mean, that could be due to you eating too much pepperoni pizza before bed. I mean, how do I know where you got that? Okay, there you have it. Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 4 next week.
And so we bow before you, Lord Jesus, author of scripture, author of salvation. Thank you for not giving us a book of Revelation, but 66 books of Revelation. If you didn't, we'd have to guess. But we don't have to. You've spelled things out. Thank you for it. Lord Jesus, embodying truth about the otherwise unseen God. We would not know. Thank you for coming near. Thank you for letting us behold you. Thank you for being Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for revealing in your word and works everything we need to know. Thank you for moving us past dependence on judges and priests and prophets and all the rest. Instead, we could look to Jesus. Again, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for loving us so much that you communicate yourself to us. We're grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Hope to see you next time. Prayer cards in the back.